Time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's local news for Tuesday, November 21st. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. In tonight's news, the governor is accusing Republican lawmakers of, quote, playing politics after denying funding to two tribal governments. A new study suggests cities should consider narrower traffic lines. A lawyer in the much-anticipated gerrymandering lawsuit shares the inside scoop on today's oral arguments at the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And later in the show, Cardinal Call considers the possibility of AI majors at UW, Wildlife Weekly heals an avian shoulder girdle, and an education advocate shares her thoughts on Wisconsin's shifting teaching standards. This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. A former biology research assistant at UW-Madison has pleaded guilty to charges related to firebombing a Madison-based anti-abortion organization. The firebombing happened last year in the aftermath of the leak of the U.S. Supreme Court opinion to overturn Roe v. Wade. The Wisconsin State Journal reports Hirindu Roy Chowdhury plans to plead guilty to throwing Molotov cocktails into the offices of Wisconsin Family Action, located near Dane County Regional Airport. Police used security camera footage near the scene to identify Roy Chowdhury's truck. Then, using DNA from a discarded burrito, law enforcement was able to put him at the scene of the crime. They tracked him to Boston's Logan Airport, where he had a one-way ticket to Guatemala City, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Court documents in the case say that DNA from two other individuals was also found at the scene, and Roy Chowdhury was spotted with other individuals on the security footage. According to the U.S. Attorney's Madison office, the investigation is ongoing. Ray Chowdhury faces up to 20 years in federal prison. In other crime-related news, David Lithjoan has pleaded guilty to two misdemeanors more than three years after he was arrested for attacking a black family in the parking lot of Woodman's Grocery Store on the east side. The 68-year-old white man allegedly punched the mother and her two children while also hurling racial epithets. He was initially charged with two counts of felony child abuse and two misdemeanors. Both originally had hate crimes enhancers attached. In the years since, attorneys on both sides had felony child abuse charges removed and, yesterday, the hate crime enhancers were also removed. During yesterday's court proceedings, the woman and her children's grandmother stated they did not support the plea agreement. They say their family continues to suffer mental health issues and they fear returning to the grocery store, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. Lithjoan will either have to do 25 hours of community service or pay a $500 fine. Two Wisconsinites have been hospitalized as part of a salmonella outbreak spread by bad cantaloupes. The outbreak has infected 43 people across 15 states, including four reported cases in Wisconsin, reports WISC-TV. Cantaloupes sold with the True Fresh label in late October have been recalled, so have fresh and dried cantaloupes sold at Aldi stores in Wisconsin. Public school libraries are getting a windfall in 2024. A record $65 million is headed to public school libraries around Wisconsin next year. That's thanks to strong investment earnings from a state-managed fund, reports the Wisconsin Examiner. Those dollars come from earnings managed by the Board of Commissioners of Public Lands, which manages profits on lands sold off by the state. A fund managed by the board, the Common School Fund, is the only funding source for more than 90% of school libraries across the state, funding things like digital and print books, along with staff like school librarians and media specialists. 
A proposal to increase downtown height limits will head to the Madison City Council at its meeting this evening. The council is expected to take up a proposal to increase a recommended move of height limits for the downtown Brayton parking lot in preparation for a proposed affordable housing development on the city-owned block. This move was recommended last week by the Madison Plan Commission. Tonight's meeting starts at 6.30 p.m. The Whole Foods grocery store on Madison's near west side has been on University Avenue for more than two and a half decades. Next month, that location will move further down the street to a new development behind the Hilldale Shopping Center. That new development, called Madison Yards, is under construction at the site of a former state building. It's one of the largest developments in the city, according to the Capital Times. The Whole Foods' new location in Madison Yards is scheduled to open four weeks from today. And now on to today's top stories. Late last month, the state legislature's budget writing committee voted along party lines to withhold grant funding from two federally recognized tribal nations in northern Wisconsin. Tribal leaders are pushing back against that decision, saying they generated the money themselves and are being unfairly excluded. WORT news producer Faye Parks has the story. Governor Tony Evers is publicly criticizing the Joint Finance Committee, the legislature's budget writing committee, of playing politics with Wisconsin's tribal nations. That's after a party-line vote late last month when the Republican-held committee decided to exclude two tribes from a newly established grant program. The program's funds, which total $11 million, come from casino revenue across the state. Democrats like Governor Evers and Senator LaTanya Johnson of Milwaukee argue that those funds should be distributed equally, $1 million for each of the 11 federally recognized tribes. However, Republicans on the Finance Committee like Senator Howard Markline of Spring Green and Representative Mark Bourne of Beaver Dam, argue that the Lac de Flambeau Band and the Bad River Band of Chippewa Indians should not receive the grant money. They say that both tribes have negatively impacted municipalities within and adjacent to their lands in northern Wisconsin. They're referring to residents in the town of Lac de Flambeau and in Ashland County, who will likely see an increased tax levy in the coming months. In the town of Lac de Flambeau, those additional funds will be used to put an easement dispute to rest. Their latest negotiation with the Lac de Flambeau Tribal Council expired in 2010. And last winter, the Tribal Council blocked off several roads that non-Native residents used to access their private property. Tribal leaders are seeking $20 million to reestablish an agreement, pay their attorneys fees, and cover more than 10 years of trespassing violations. Meanwhile, a 2022 court ruling determined that Native Americans do not have to pay property taxes on tribal lands, even if non-tribal residents previously owned that same property. While members of the Bad River Band waited for that decision, they continued to pay taxes in Ashland County. Now, the county will have to pay back more than $150,000. Leaders in both tribes are now fighting against the committee's party-line vote to exclude them from funding. John Johnson Sr., the tribal president for the Lac de Flambeau Band, and Robert Blanchard, the tribal chairman for the Bad River Band, collaborated to issue two letters. The first went to the committee's leaders, arguing that the vote is a clear example of discrimination and the state is withholding money that the tribes generated from their own casinos. They wrote that each tribe would consider legal action if they continued to be excluded from the program. The second letter went to the leaders of tribes that were not excluded, asking their peers to reject their allotted funds or, if necessary, 
accept the funds, quote, under outspoken protest, unquote. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. As cities and states around the country either expand or fix roadways, a new study suggests they strongly consider narrower traffic lanes. The authors say improving safety is the biggest takeaway, but potential environmental benefits can't be ignored either. Wisconsin News Connection's Mike Moen has the story. Wisconsin's largest city has seen recent debate over highway expansion plans amid environmental concerns. A new study suggests that for similar projects, impacts could be limited if narrower traffic lanes are prioritized. The expansion plan in Milwaukee involves a stretch of Interstate 94. Research from the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health was more focused on urban roadways with speed limits of around 35 miles an hour. Dr. Shima Hamidi helped lead the study, which says switching from lane widths between 12 and 11 feet, long the norm, down to 9 feet helps reduce traffic collisions. She says it also leaves more room for options that don't involve vehicles. It also will help many people to switch from driving to other modes of transportation, such as biking and walking, which could result in greenhouse gas emission reductions from transportation. The study notes that with narrower lanes, people won't feel compelled to drive as fast and will be more alert. Hamidi says while this approach might slow traffic, past research shows minimal effects. That means these changes wouldn't cancel out environmental benefits. Other studies have shown expanding the number of lanes in general doesn't reduce congestion. Hamidi also notes that transportation planners and engineers have expressed liability concerns. But she says her team's study is one of the first to give cities and states firm data on the traffic safety side, showing that skinnier lanes are more effective. We are getting more and more interest from transportation planners, mostly at the local level. Cities are eager and interested to really see how this could be implemented. Hamidi says the next steps involve more research to quantify some of the other impacts, including air pollution. The study issued this month analyzed nearly 1,200 streets in seven cities around the U.S. The findings come amid a gradual increase in pedestrian fatalities over the past decade. This is Mike Bowen for Wisconsin News Connection. Find our trust indicators at publicnewsservice.org. A recent study investigated the link between carbon pollution and wildfires in North America. Carbon dioxide released by scores of major fossil fuel producers and cement makers has left the western United States and Canada hotter, drier, and more prone to fires. Dr. Anthony Leisowitz of Yale's Climate Connections has details about this study. I'm Dr. Anthony Leisowitz, and this is Climate Connections. In recent decades, wildfires have scorched forests in the western U.S. and Canada. By contributing to climate change, the world's biggest carbon polluters made those fires far more destructive. And new research shows by just how much. Pablo Ortiz Partida of the Union of Concerned Scientists says carbon pollution is making the region hotter and drier, which creates more fuel for fires. It's these hot and dry conditions that enable wildfires to burn more forest area. His team found that nearly 40% of the area burned by forest fires in Western North America over a 25-year period can be attributed to the amount of carbon pollution produced by 88 major fossil fuel producers and cement makers. So that amounts to nearly 20 million acres of area, which is roughly an area the size of the state of Maine. He says these wildfires are costly. 
until now, the general public has been paying that bill with tax money. And this is not right because while the fossil fuel companies haven't been the ones lighting the match, they have certainly increased the fuel. So he hopes the study can be used to help hold these companies legally responsible. Climate Connections is produced by the Yale Center for Environmental Communication. To learn more about climate change, visit climateconnections.org. It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. This morning, attorneys in the much-anticipated redistricting lawsuit presented oral arguments to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Mark Gaber works with the Washington, D.C.-based Campaign Legal Center, a nonpartisan organization that advocates for voters' rights. Gaber and his colleagues are representing the petitioners who argue Wisconsin's current legislative district maps are unconstitutional. Gaber spoke with WRT news producer Faye Parks just minutes after today's court proceedings wrapped up. Thank you for joining me, Mark. Thanks for having me. So you commenced oral arguments in front of the state Supreme Court this morning in the redistricting lawsuit. So for the listeners who may not be familiar with that language, what exactly are the oral arguments? This is an opportunity for the justices of the Supreme Court to ask the lawyers for both sides whatever questions they might have and for the lawyers to, you know, it's their last chance to sort of speak to the court. They filed their briefs. This is a chance to make any point that, you know, each side feels important or compelling. So we had, I think, 160 minutes of, of argument today in the Wisconsin Supreme Court. What happened during today's proceedings? What were your main points? Well, you know, the main points that we wanted to make and hopefully made to the justices was that the legal claims in this issue or in this case are about the fact that Wisconsin has some 75 legislative districts that have detached pieces of territory all throughout the state. And that violates the sort of basic plain text of the state's constitution, which says that those districts have to have what's called contiguous territory. And that's a pretty basic word. It means that everything has to be touching. And and right now, most of the districts across the state aren't. And it, it takes a bit to fix that because of the way municipal boundaries correspond with wards and the legislative districts. And so we made the point to the court that they have to apply the text as it's written. And so the maps are unconstitutional. The other issue with the maps is that the court imposed them in the Johnson, what's called the Johnson litigation in 2021 and 2022. They were the maps that the legislature proposed and the governor vetoed them. But nevertheless, the court just sort of didn't take on any judicial role, just to put the, the legislature's maps in place. And, and so we argue that that violates the separation of powers. The governor vetoed it, the legislature failed to override it, and the court can't then put that exact same map in place and effectively have a judicial override of the governor's veto. And so what arguments did the Wisconsin Elections Commission present to defend the current voting maps? So the Elections Commission hasn't really taken a position in the case. They, they administer the election. So they've basically just said, whatever you do, please have it done by you know March. The legislature intervened in the case to defend the map, as did a group of private voters. And they, <laughs> they kind of, I mean, from my perspective, they dance around the, the actual text of the Constitution. I, I, I think it's kind of hard to say that contiguous territory means that you can have a bunch of detached pieces everywhere. That's just not the plain language of that provision. But they tried to come up with arguments for why they thought that was the case, because, you know, the municipalities touched each other or something. But their primary argument then was, well, if this is unconstitutional, then we shouldn't fix it right now, because this should have been brought up earlier. 
But of course, there's never too soon and it's never too late to comply with the Wisconsin Constitution. So it's hard to try to <laughs> characterize someone else's argument as opposing you, but that's sort of my take on it and, and my view of the argument that they made. So you mentioned the timing, and that was an issue that Justice Bradley also questioned. I think she insinuated that you waited to file until after the court flipped to a liberal majority. What is your response to that? You know, courts change all the time. There's elections for these positions almost every year. Uh, you know, sometimes there's not one, but most years we have these elections. The court changes all the time. Redistricting lawsuits are generally filed around uh, August of the preceding year. And it's just, I just disagree with the idea in general that particularly this question of contiguity. I mean, this isn't a, I don't think this depends on who's elected to the Supreme Court. I think this, this should be unanimous. This is not a controversial issue about what this question of what this word means. So I, I guess I just don't, I don't see it through that lens. This isn't a partisan issue. You know, we've said to the court that when the court is in a position of remedying a constitutional violation, it has to ensure that the map it selects is not skewed in favor of one party. And that's just a sort of a universally accepted or near universally accepted principle of judicial neutrality. If the court's putting a map in place, it needs to not pick sides. So that's obviously an incredibly important point. The current map is probably the most gerrymandered map in the country. And it got worse with the map the court put in place this last time. And that, that should never happen. And so how long has your group been working on this lawsuit behind the scenes? Oh, I, you know, it takes, if you, if you looked at the petition we filed and the substantial brief, you know, that takes a little bit of time. But so this was, you know, prepared over the, over the summer to get ready. And, and frankly, <laughs> the other thing I would say is it's not like this was held back. It was filed when it was ready. I would have preferred to have had some more time with it to get it ready. There were several sleepless nights in the advance of filing it. So this is not like an easy undertaking or, or one that you sit and lie and wait with. What kind of reception did you get from the justices today regarding your arguments? Aside from Justice Bradley, what sort of questions did you get, that kind of thing? I think the justices were probing the, you know, the when they're looking at a constitutional provision, they look to see what the original public meaning of it was back in 1848 when the Constitution was ratified. And so I think they were probing that and they had some incisive questions about, about that. And so I think they were they have a body of case law that says that contiguous means touching, so it's not too hard of a conclusion to come to, but I think they were giving it due attention. And so what is your timeline moving forward? It sounds like from what you said at the start of this interview, the oral arguments are sort of the wrap up after you filed all of your documents. So what are the next steps after this and how long will the arguments take? The next steps after this, you know, the court will issue, presumably will issue its decision on the legal questions. And if we prevail, then the court would would have set up a process to have a new what they're called remedial maps put in place. And I I can't really speculate what that would look like. We've we've suggested a process to the court that would involve appointing a neutral expert to kind of make recommendations to the court. Whether they do that, you know, we'll see. And do you expect the ruling to be in your favor, or is it too early to speculate? I never like to speculate about how a court is going to rule. I think the ruling should be in our favor on the law. I think it's a pretty clear question of the meaning of a word that has a common meaning in the English language. But I, I would never speculate about how a court's going to rule. And so you suggested to the court a nonpartisan group or, or individual that would propose new maps. And then, as you said, the, the court would make the final determination on how that is done. Do you have any insight on what that would look like? 
Well, you know, we've we've suggested you know have the have the parties make proposals, propose maps to that expert and and have that person then make a report and recommendation to the Supreme Court. But there's any number of ways to handle the process and the court's really in charge of deciding how it wants it to look. Would they be able to establish new maps in time? Oh, there's definitely time to have new maps for the 2024 election. We're we're on the same schedule or perhaps even further ahead of the schedule that got the current maps in place. So there's really no issue there. Thank you again for agreeing to speak with me, Mark. Great. Thanks. Have a nice day. You too. That was Mark Gaber of the Campaign Legal Center. He's the attorney that presented the oral arguments for the petitioners in the redistricting lawsuit before the state Supreme Court. Those oral arguments took place earlier today. Mark says the lawsuit was filed when they were ready and not timed to coincide with the court's flip to a liberal majority. He says that the Supreme Court should have plenty of time to establish new voting maps, if necessary, before the election cycle in 2024. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. UW System Schools proposed developing AI majors under a $32 million workforce development proposal. This week, Cardinal Call co-producer Hee-Wan Lim discussed what these majors might look like with reporter Natasha Hicks. Hello, and welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal Student Newspaper. I'm your co-host, Gavin Escott. And I'm your co-host, Hee-Wan Lim. Today, we're joined by reporter Natasha Hicks to discuss the proposal to bring artificial intelligence programs to UW System Schools. Natasha, thanks so much for joining me. Happy to be here. First off, what is AI? So AI is artificial intelligence, and you see intelligence in like human intelligence, but then artificial intelligence is that similar kind of intelligence, but in things like machines or computers, and it can span from things like ChatGPT, which is like computer intelligence, to even like blood transfusions, medical things like medical machinery. You can start using AI for things like that as well. So it really branches out everywhere, but it's just artificial things or like machines using intelligence the same way a human might use intelligence. That's super cool. Tell me about the proposal to launch AI programs across UW system schools. So this is a recent proposal, I believe, and they discussed it in the most recent board meeting, which I believe was last Thursday. But there was a certain amount of money, I think it was like $32 million or something, that was held back from the UW system. And now we're proposing to use that amount of money to launch programs that might help with workforce development. And one of those programs that they're hoping for is artificial intelligence. And so it's not every single UW school, but some of the UW schools are thinking of potentially launching majors in artificial intelligence, while other ones are thinking of just establishing centers for artificial intelligence or research programs or just putting more of a focus on AI in schools because it is something that's just up and coming in the workforce and a really big thing in today's society. Yeah, like you said, some schools are considering adding AI majors and minors, while others plan to establish centers dedicated to AI. What do you think is the value in studying AI? Oh, 
That's a really good question. I think it is something that is important in the workforce and a big part of our society now. It's something that's inevitable. It's something that's been created. And I was talking to Professor Mintz and he was talking about how computers, they weren't a thing, but then eventually we just adapted them into our society and they became super, super prevalent. And he thinks AI is going to be the same. And so I guess the value of studying AI is because AI is going to be a part of every single field and every single workforce. It's up and coming. It's new. And so studying it and kind of jumping on top of that and learning more about this new resource is a really, really valuable thing in education. Yeah, that's super cool. And with that being said, what do you think a major in AI would look like? (laughs) That's another really good question, because I think at least what Dr. Mintz was saying is we don't really know yet. AI is such a new thing that it's really hard to just establish like a core curriculum of like, this is what you need to know about AI. This is AI 101. It's very difficult to establish a core curriculum because AI is really, really new, but it's also really diverse. It can be things involved in computer science. It can be things involved in engineering. It can be medicine. AI goes into so many different fields and there's so many different aspects to it that it's really hard to just narrow it down. This is what AI is. This is AI 101. So I think it would definitely be a very diverse major. There would be a lot of different options, different tracks, things like that, because there isn't just like one thing that is AI or like just a general baseline curriculum. So I don't really know what it would look like, but hopefully they're able to develop it or come up with some cool ideas because I think there's a lot there. Yeah, that's a really good point. I feel like whenever I think about AI, my perception of it was very narrow because Mm -hmm. I mostly heard about it in the context of, oh, students are going to use this to cheat on papers and stuff. (laughs) But I never really considered how it could be helpful in certain fields. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Dr. Mintz was telling me about how he has a research project where he's researching AI used in medicine and like using artificial intelligence and machinery kind of on the engineering side to perform things like blood transfusions and medical procedures with precision and excellence. And so using AI can actually make a profound life and death difference in things like the medicine field. And so there's definitely a lot of different aspects to it aside from just chat GPT and like classwork. Yeah, and I remember in your article you talked about how in this hypothetical AI major, there would be all of these different aspects to it, such as what are the ethics of AI and sort of the more humanity side, but then there's also more of the programming and technical aspect to that. And I thought that was super interesting. Yeah, (laughs) I found that really, really interesting, too. I think that was a really, really great point that Dr. Mintz brought up, because there also is that humanity side and the ethics of should we be using artificial intelligence and things like medicine? Should we be using it in things like classwork? Is it okay that students are using ChatGPT? So there is a humanity side to it, as well as that practical engineering side or the comp sci side. There's just so much to artificial intelligence. Yeah, and going along with that. You know, as a journalist, what do you think the future of journalism will look like with the field of AI continuing to grow? Ooh, I haven't even thought about AI involved with journalism, but it totally is the case because you can absolutely use artificial intelligence to research things for journalism, perform journalism, even just like ChatGPT, you can use it to like help with your research and stuff like that. So I think it can absolutely play a really big difference. And as We have machines that are able to do more and more and more and replicate that human intelligence more and more. It could have profound impacts in journalism. Natasha, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. Have a great day. You too. In other campus news, a fire started an engineering hall Friday morning. 
The building was evacuated and students were advised to stay clear of the area, per a whisk alert sent at 7.49 a.m. by the university. According to a tweet by the university, no one was injured. In other campus news, Camp Randall hosted the 41st WIAA High School Football Championship on Thursday and Friday. This year marks the 41st anniversary of the championship being held at the historic home of the Wisconsin Badgers, with the game only missing one year in 2020 due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And in other campus news, the Badgers broke their losing streak in football on Saturday, winning 24-17 against Nebraska. Go Badgers! That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. On tonight's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg discusses some of the most common types of injuries among birds that need rehabilitation. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I want to talk about the avian bird shoulder girdle. And I've been thinking about the shoulder girdle a lot in the last few weeks because it is by far one of the most common areas of injury to any of our birds that are admitted for rehabilitation. And when I say the shoulder girdle, I think back to our anatomy classes in high school or college. It's a lot of memorization, and I have to give props to all of the veterinarians and certified vet techs and other people out there, instructors, that really go deep down into the anatomy of different animals to know exactly what their bodies are composed of and how those parts work, because it is a lot. It is sometimes overwhelming, actually, for a lot of rehabilitators, especially new ones, to start memorizing the different bones, the muscles, the tendons, the nerves that are just all functioning together in this small area. I'm not even talking about other parts of the body, right? It's just the shoulder girdle. Yes, it's complicated in humans, but it's also complicated in birds. And we've had a number of patients in the last couple of weeks that have had fractures in each of the different bones that are in the shoulder girdle. And when I say the shoulder girdle, we're talking about a couple of different bones. So birds, just like people, do have clavicles. So the clavicles are going to sometimes be called the wishbone or the furculum, and it's going to be sitting right along the front of the bird, just above the pectoral muscles. And when we say above, we call it cranial, meaning towards the head. But sometimes it's a little easier to think of it sitting above, like towards the top of the bird. And so it's going to be one of the first bones that comes into contact with something like a window, for example. So when we have birds that have incurred a window strike and they're hitting it at a high velocity, the first bone to impact usually, unless they turn, is going to be the front forward facing clavicles. So we have the clavicles in front and behind them, and when I say behind them, I actually kind of mean more posteriorly or caudally, so it's going to be further away from the head. Those are going to be the coracoids, and they actually sit a bit deeper down into the chest cavity. The coracoids are, I would say, even more commonly fractured than the clavicles, 
The coracoids are not a bone that humans have, but birds do have to have because they have these really big muscles, those pectoral muscles that allow them to fly. And they need an extra set of bones to support their keel, which is the biggest bone in the body. That's the central one that's running down through the front of the chest. It's, gosh, it takes up probably about a third of their bodies. It's a huge bone. And so the coracoid attaches not only to the keel area, but also is in conjunction with the clavicles. And so it acts as like a strut or like an extra piece of lumber. If you think about building a house and you need a little bit of extra support, you're going to add an extra support beam, right? And that's going to help to take the load off of a certain pressure area. That's what you can kind of think of the coracoids as. So when the bird is trying to fly, and especially when it's bringing the wings down, and so when we're doing the compression of the, the those muscles in a downstroke, that's where the coracoid is coming into play most by keeping extra support of the entire chest, basically. So we've got the clavicles, we've got the coracoids. They look really similar. The clavicles are just a little more thin. The coracoid is quite a bit thicker, and it's got some cartilaginous type of structures that kind of hold it together, so a little bit softer there. And then behind it, we've got the scapulas. So you think about your own back, you know, and we think about our scapulas as these kind of triangular-like bones that sit flat against our backs. Well, the scapulas for uh, birds are actually going to be turned inwards a little bit more, so they're not really flat triangles like ours are. They're actually pretty thin. They're narrow. They're a bit fragile, actually. And they, they sit more, I would say, like horizontally, kind of like railroad tracks along the spine if you're looking at the back of a bird. And that's just anecdotal from me looking at birds. That's kind of what I would see if I was trying to do a physical examination. So it's like a blade-like bone. It looks like a sword. <laughs> that's the best way to describe it. And it really varies in length depending on the species and how much they're flying and what their flying strength is. And then we've got the other bones that are attached to that shoulder girdle area. So, of course, we're always looking at the humerus, for example, which is your first bone of the arm or the wing. And that does come into conjunction with that area. And, of course, we're also thinking about vertebra and other parts of the spine that are going to run through the shoulder girdle. But primarily when I say the shoulder girdle, we think the clavicle, the coracoid, and the scapula. That's super fun. It actually comes together in something we call the triosyl foramen. And so that is the three bones coming together right at the shoulder. And again, those three bones are the ones most commonly found fractured by rehabilitators when an animal is presenting and we're going through physical exams. Sometimes we'll see fractures that cause punctured air sacs. So because the birds have air sacs that are running along all sides of their body, there's it's actually quite extensive. It can very easily lead to, you know, a bone shifting, breaking, moving to a direction it's not supposed to be, to accidentally puncturing one of those air sacs and making it harder for them to breathe. So that's a pretty common thing that we will see. Sometimes the air from an air sac rupture can even leak underneath the skin, and it's called subcutaneous emphysema, and it's just air trapped under the skin. We do see that sometimes with these types of injuries. Otherwise, commonly, we'll find bruising, so a hematoma around the injury site, which can take a while to resolve. The fracture itself of any of those bones only really takes, on average, about 7 to 10 days to start forming a callus. For bigger birds, it might take longer. So a lot of our birds that might be like eagle-sized or, you know, raptors, we're probably going to keep them about three weeks in care in a small restricted cage so they don't flap around very much. And that way the bones have time to heal in the right place, whether that's with a splint, with a wrap, with surgery, sometimes just cage rest depending on which bone is broken. 
it really depends on the species, the type of fracture, and which bone is fractured of the shoulder girdle to know what kind of treatment protocol to use. So we commonly, other than that, sometimes have open fractures and sometimes closed fractures. I would say that the shoulder girdle, most often, these are closed fractures, meaning that they're fractured inside the body, they're contained, there's no open skin or wounds that are risking any sort of bacterial infection. Yes, sometimes it happens, but I would say it's pretty rare for the number or volume of birds that we see with those injuries. So that's a good thing. That's actually got a better prognosis for recovery and release and with proper treatment. And if that bird is able to get into rehabilitation as soon as possible to get proper treatment and to get medications to help control the pain. And if they need other types of, again, surgical care, or veterinary care, the rehabilitator is going to have those options available to them. So if you ever find a bird that hits a window or maybe got hit by a car or any sort of physical trauma, Highly recommend that you contact your local rehabilitator as soon as possible, even if that means just leaving a voicemail. You might not get a hold of somebody right away. Not a lot of rehabilitators answer the phone directly because of the high volume of calls that are received. Our center takes in 6,000 phone calls a year, if you didn't know. So a lot of times, just leaving a voicemail, let them know you have a bird, you found one, and maybe you contained it safely, and you're just waiting to know when you can bring it in for an appointment. Those are the birds that are going to get care received quickly, and hopefully if they have a fracture in one of these areas, we'll be able to treat it, and sooner is better, rather than waiting. So that's my spiel today here on WORT about the avian shoulder girdle and which bones are composed in that area. And of course, be on the lookout for sick, injured, orphaned animals. If you ever have a question about wildlife or think you need to admit a sick animal, an injured animal, definitely give us a call at 608-287-3235. Otherwise, thanks for listening. This has been Wildlife Weekly. It's now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. The Wisconsin legislature is considering a new certification plan for classroom teachers, one where they would no longer have to pass the Foundations of Reading Test, also known as FORT. The plan has bipartisan support as Wisconsin is in the midst of a serious teacher shortage. On last Friday's 8 o'clock buzz, host Andy Moore spoke to Dr. Heather Pesky, the president of the Washington, D.C.-based National Council on Teacher Quality, to get her perspective on the plan. Welcome to the Friday buzz, Dr. Pesky. Good morning, Andy. Thank you so much for having me here. Yes, thank you for taking the time. I, I hope this first question doesn't seem too far off the road to start with, but I'm married to a 35-year career elementary school teacher, and in that time, until recent times, it seems that pressure on public schools has been to improve math curriculum and reading be damned. Uh, do you agree with that? And, and are reading skills ascending in priority in a general way for public schooling? Well, Andy, I like to think that we need to focus on both reading and math, as well as science, social studies, and the arts, the many arts, to provide children with access to a, an excellent education that gives them access to whatever decisions they make after high school. So is reading ascending? I think there's increasing concern about mm -hmm. the low rates of literacy across our country. And so rightfully, there's a real focus on trying to improve reading instruction to improve results for kids. On the process to become a classroom teacher, how, how common is the Fort test or tests like it for prospective teachers nationally? Well, across the U.S., all states except one do have a requirement for a licensure test for teachers in place. And so the Foundations of Reading test is used in several other states besides Wisconsin, including the state that I come from, Massachusetts. And it is a strong reading licensure test. Can you give us an example of the kinds of questions or exercises that a person would encounter on a FORT test? 
Well, Andy, there's now uh, over 40 years of research that we call the science of reading that tells us specifically how to teach reading and how to effectively teach reading so that children become strong, lifelong readers. And within the science of reading, there are five core components. And without getting too expert or too wonky on you, (laughs) I would say the five core components include things like phonics or phonemic awareness, vocabulary, fluency, and comprehension. So those five core components I listed, they're all included in the foundations of reading test. So prospective teachers are asked questions about their knowledge about phonics Mm -hmm. or their knowledge about phonemic awareness. So they're asked questions about the extent to which they know about this research base and the extent to which they are prepared to teach it. I read one statistic that the passing rate for first-time Fort test takers was 60%. Is that accurate? I believe that is accurate, although you'd have to specifically ask the Wisconsin Department of Instruction. Yes, yes. A a new report from your organization, the National Council on Teacher Quality, shows only 3% of teacher preparation programs require aspiring teachers to complete courses in in most of the social studies and science topics an elementary school teacher needs to know in order to promote students' literacy and learning. What can you tell us about the impact that statistic has on who is running the classroom and, and what's happening in there? Well, in Wisconsin right now, Andy, we know that when we look at the the data for students, we know that in third graders in Wisconsin, last year only one in three third graders in Wisconsin was proficient in reading. And much worse when we look at the situation for students who are black, 68% of black fourth graders in Wisconsin on the most recent data were below basic in reading and about half of Hispanic students. This compares to about three in 10 students overall who are below basic in reading in Wisconsin. And so I tell you that to tell you that children are in peril right now and we have a literacy crisis. And so we need to make sure that teachers have the knowledge and skills they need in order to effectively teach Mm -hmm. kids to read. Those statistics really support that that last thesis. If you're just joining us, I'm, I'm talking with Heather Pesky. She's the president of the Washington, D.C.-based National Council on Teacher Quality. She's on the phone from Atlanta. Dr. Pesky, still the stubborn problem of the teacher shortage and desperate measures to address it is a, is a real problem in Wisconsin and, and in many other states. I can give you one example of a middle school here in Madison where since the start of the school year, over a dozen teaching and support staff have quit three in one week. What do you think is causing the teacher shortage? Well, Andy, I think we saw Herculean efforts during the pandemic on the part of teachers and administrators in schools to ensure that kids had access to effective instruction. And teachers and administrators face a number of challenges. And yet teaching is also the most wonderful work that one could do. And so I think we really need to think about the working conditions in schools. We need to ensure that teachers have the knowledge and skills, the access to high quality curriculum so that they can be effective with students. And Andy, what we find is that when teachers don't have the knowledge and skills and they get into classrooms unprepared, they're not successful with students and then they decide to leave. Hmm. So they leave students almost in a worse condition than if they hadn't begun to teach at all because they simply perpetuate the revolving door. So the solution to teacher shortages is not to lower the guardrails for what teachers need to know and be able to do before they get into classrooms. I hear you saying that teachers who are unprepared, teachers who are not expected to pass exams like the fort, like any other occupation, if you get in the work environment and you're in over your head, you just can't do the work. 
That's right. And, you know, every teacher wants to be successful with students. That's what motivates them to do this work. And so when teachers get into classrooms and they haven't been prepared and they don't have the knowledge and skills and there was no signal through a licensure exam about whether or not they have the the knowledge and skills, oftentimes those teachers are unsuccessful with students and they decide to leave. You touched on this a little bit earlier. What do you think are the best set of criteria, generally speaking, to establish a teacher's fitness to run a classroom? Well, when it comes to reading, Andy, we need to make sure that they have the knowledge that we call the science of reading, that they know the five core components Mm -hmm. of reading, and not just that they have the knowledge, but they have the skills to instruct students. So how do you teach consonant blends to kindergartners? How do you teach sounds to kindergartners? How do you teach first graders about reading fluently? Teaching is a hard enterprise, and it requires a great deal of knowledge and skill to be successful. And this licensure test currently in place in Wisconsin, the Fort test, we've determined it's a strong licensure test. It's one of six (laughs) out of 25 licensure tests we looked at that's strong. So that's one way of determining whether or not the teachers have the knowledge and skills before they enter the classroom to be successful. Is the public getting callous? Uh, Am I over-exaggerating? Or or do you think that in a state like Wisconsin, forgoing the reading test for teachers will be just another example of the public shrugging their shoulders about education and saying, oh, well, as long as I can get to work and they're safe? No, Andy. I think the opposite. I'm a parent of two kids, two, two daughters who are teenagers. I'm a former fourth grade teacher. I think we have a lot of investment in public education and people care deeply, families care deeply about ensuring that their children are both safe and also get what they need to get in terms of the knowledge and skills before they graduate from high school. The legislature in Wisconsin has just made a $50 million investment in reading, in new sweeping legislation around improving reading results. That to me signals that Wisconsin cares about reading and cares about schools and cares about kids. Heather Pesky, thank you so much for joining us on the Friday 8 o'clock buzz. Thank you, Andy, so much for inviting me. I appreciate it. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, Gavin Escott, and Hewan Lim. Along with thanks to 8 o'clock buzz host Andy Moore, Mike Mullen of the Wisconsin News Connection, and Dr. Anthony Lizowitz of Yale's Climate Connections. Super Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Faye Parks produced this newscast. And Shally Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe where you keep up with your favorite podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. Up next is Spanish language news with the Nuestro Patio. Good night.